Yo, what up, everybody? Ni hao, salam alaikum, bonjour, and bienvenidos to the Micopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about fungi entrepreneurs making serious moves in the global village, and we are cooking with fire today. We've got Chef Nikki Stewart on the podcast telling it exactly like it is. Thank you for listening in. Let's get down to brass tacks right now. Let's get this show on the road, baby. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. What's popping in your corner of the world today, Chef Nikki? <laughs> What's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. So happy that you're here. Thanks for joining us. So I first heard about your work and your presence in the cannabis realm and the psychedelic space via our mutual friends at Oakland Hyphae, who, of course, through the Oakland Psychedelic Conference that you were a part of alongside my good friend David Poplin of Humble Mycology. And then I started seeing that you're a part of all these extraordinary events. You've got high-end cannabis affairs, celebrity shindigs, and a bunch of exciting stuff. So I got to know, how did you first get introduced to this intersection of cannabis, psychedelics, and celebrities? Because that's quite the cross-pollination right there, Nikki. It very much is quite the cross-pollination. Um... I really kind of fell into it. Now, I, as a chef, prior to you know my involvement with plant medicine, outside of me being a personal consumer of plant medicine, I was a chef. And but before that, I was a pharmacist. I went into I went to school for pharmaceutical sciences. Okay, and so after like leaving that career and going into culinary, I you know realized that there was kind of a void that I needed to fill with certain types of clientele for luxury events. And so I started going on tour with a few artists. Um, and one day Snoop asked me to do his first cannabis infused dinner party for the launch of Mary Jane, which is his media company. And so um, that's kind of where I first really kind of got my start in doing cannabis dinners. My first one was for Snoop. And um, there was a lot of people there, a ton of celebrities. It's in Hollywood, um, in the hills. And I was like, this could be a thing. You know what I mean? I had to use my background and knowledge in pharmaceutical sciences to understand how to properly dose this amount of people. Because some people do cannabis dinners and it's like 20 people. At that point, my first one was 250. Yeah. So that was a... That was it's a lot of math. It's a lot of math. And then pretty much from there, um, I, I gained, you know, a different kind of name for myself amongst certain celebrities just because they're like, yo, you got to get Chef Nikki. Like, she's going to lay that shit out. Like, it's going to be nice to send a third. So I'm never once advertised. I've never asked someone to hire me. It's always, it's only been word of mouth. And then, um, of course, working for Dave, that's a whole different level of group of celebrities as well and you know there's often other experiences that they like to have <laughs> well they set the bar pretty high for that first event for you it sounds like but uh, it's nice to see that you've been able to continue to build momentum and do all these other incredible events that i want to tap into but let's go back let's go back to your roots as a chef, okay? Because I imagine that the inspiration and the devotion to your craft as a chef has some deep roots. Maybe going back to grandma's kitchen or something of the sort. Can you tell us a little bit about the roots of your culinary tastes and your passion for food and for cooking? Yeah, I sure can. You're catching me at a good moment because all this stuff is to the forefront of my brain because I'm in the process of writing a book about this. <laughs> so, 
But um, I do have um, like ancestrally like am connected into alchemy and plant medicine just via my grandparents, um, my great grandparents, which also clearly connected to food. I learned, you know, how to cook from my grandmother, but my grandfather was a, a medicine man, like he, but it was old school, like, you know, what we know is foraging now, you know, I'm sure they weren't calling it, like, it wasn't as, you know, a thing, and it was just survival, okay, and it was also health and wellness, um, and so I pull a lot of energy from you know, those spaces, there's a part of me that often, often realizes and asks the question, like, why am I like this? You know what I mean? Like, why do I have this natural ability to, you know, kind of go in and out of these um, different realms and different entheogen spaces and still be very comfortable and very grounded? Um, a lot of times when I tell people what I do with plant medicine as a, on a personal level, they're like, holy shit, like what? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not out here. I don't ever tell people I'm a healer or a shaman or anything like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just doing the job that my pathway that has been laid before me, you know? So, but yeah, the food thing was very deep. And like I used to stand on the stool next to my grandmother while she was in the kitchen, ask her for recipes. I never knew why her food tastes so good. It never made sense to me because when I would look at her, I'm like, she's just doing this, 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 and this, but it tastes so much better. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I just continue to like kind of sit with her and learn from her and my grandfather. They're both from the South. Um, so a lot of aesthetic of food is very Southern, um, very like kind of low country Southern vibes. So that's how I grew up. I, I mean... We, we grew up on what we call organic food, which is shit from my grandparents' yard. You know what I mean? I love the Southern aesthetic of food. I spent some time in Atlanta with the Savannah College of Art and Design at their campus there. And they would wine and dine us. And at lunch, at this big spread, and they had the fried green tomatoes and the grits and all these other Southern staples. At lunch, we'd be talking about what we we're going to have for dinner. And that was just so awesome and homely, you know, to have that sense of community and like these really big spreads and long lunches. And that's what life's all about for me. The Southern aesthetic of food, you know, like I'm, I really get into the history of that food why certain flavors and certain recipes, how they developed, where, why, you know what I mean? So I do a lot of food talks on why that influence of food is number one, so comforting to us, but number two, it's also so relatable. And so, yeah, I mean, I can go way deeper, but it's gonna, then we're gonna start talking about the African diaspora and food trays and shit like that. So let's keep it. <laughs> Well, that's a good pitch for your book. So whenever that comes out, you'll get the full story on the background of some of this stuff and happy to talk about that to whatever extent you want to. But it looks like all of that passion and hustle derived from your lineage and from your time in the kitchen with the grandparents, it's informed your brand that you have called The High End Affair, which I want to get down to brass tacks about right now. Actually, just yesterday, I hosted Andrew D'Angelo on the podcast, who's co-founder of The Last Prisoner Project, successful cannabis entrepreneur. 
And we talked about this rise of, of a term called Cali Sober, which to be honest, I do not like that name, but the idea is brilliant. And the idea is having more social events that incorporate conscious cannabis and psychedelic use as opposed to getting shit-faced on alcohol and doing hard drugs, etc. And the high-end affair very much fits into that new paradigm of a reimagined, elevated social experience with cannabis-infused food. So I'd love to hear about how did you get rolling with the high-end affair and when can I come to one of the events? Okay. So the high-end affair was established in 2018 and it was established about a year, about a year and a half after I had done the party with Snoop. Um, I kind of had to, I, I thought about like, why couldn't I bring this to everyone in every state that is recreational or medical? Um, and so it's like, there's nobody really doing a culinary tour. That's a very interesting concept is, I mean, we do pop-ups of course, but a culinary tour that with a focus on cannabis was pretty unheard of. And so I said, well, shit, I'm going to put this together and we're going to figure it out. It's a very interesting thing when you're walking into uncharted territory. It's a very interesting thing when you're like some of the first folks to kind of do it because I realized outside of me being the guinea pig for all the other chefs and all the other folks in the space to come. Um, somebody has to be the sacrificial lamb. And I was just like, I'm just going to jump out there and just fuck it. I mean, it's definitely a very gray area. Very gray. <laughs> okay. And people are very nervous for me often. Like when I first started it, everyone told me, don't do it. Like, I can't explain to you how many people thought that I was going to jail like pretty quickly. They were very, they were standing firm on the fact that this would not work. And so I, I was just like, yeah, it'll work if people keep their mouth shut. Okay. Shh, shh. Keep, be quiet. So therefore when you come to the high end affair, you immediately sign an NDA. There are no phones. Like the content that we capture, we capture it on our end. You can use your phone in designated phone areas, but we started this off as a very quiet, like movement, you know, if you knew, you knew, like, and if you knew about me and knew that what I did, then that's what's up. You'll buy a ticket. <laughs> and then after that little grab, cause mind you, my first one outside of LA was in Ohio. And we did not have the same type of laws at all. Um, and so I took a chance at, in, Ohio, in Ohio as a, like my test market to see if this would actually work. And then next thing you know, we started getting sponsors and partnerships and um, like WeMaps is one of our media sponsors for the high end affair. Like we have a lot of folks that just come in and chip in because they love it. And I mean, I remember the first time that I was doing a party and like Green Day came and I was like, what? This is wild. And then E-40 walks in and was like, I've been waiting to meet you. And I'm like, really? Seriously, you have? And it's just kind of like those moments I have, it's, it, it's, it's very mind-blowing. But it also reminds me why I'm here. Like I am doing the right thing. Because the celebrity things are cool. But I still want to be able to like make the impact on the general cannabis community and people who are not connected to the community and want to be able to try things at home and be able to try 
um, other plant medicines. So I'm just kind of relaxing that barrier. You know, that segues perfectly into my next question and talking point, which is shifting gears from high society to the hood. And in particular, I'd love to talk about food deserts and the recent historical lack of access to healthy and nutritious foods for a lot of inner city and urban communities, which surely is changing in some regards with more and more co-ops and community gardens, etc. But in the past two generations or so, Nutritious food has been woefully lacking in many marginalized communities. And as a result, there's a epidemic with diabetes, with chronic obesity, all sorts of unfortunate health issues. I'm curious, is this something that you see changing with the new generation and with more access to the peer economy, community-based agriculture and co-ops and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it's being worked on. Um Unfortunately, we're not going to see the progress that we want in the time that we want. Um, I, w- I would say personally myself uh, that I support a lot of those community gardens, um, like financially, uh, because, for example, one, when we do the Hind Affair in Detroit, there is a community garden called Ohana Gardens, and it's ran by, um, it's like a co-op garden for an area called Highland Park in Detroit. And I get all my produce from them. And it's a lot, and the produce from that is the what is the dinner, you know what I mean, for 200 people. So that's a significant amount of produce. But I'm always reminded when I go on those visits to a lot of those gardens and those community um, stores that are like, you know, more market style places, how much funding and how much support that they need. You know what I mean? Um, it, it really sucks. I live in a downtown area, um, where I live, there's no grocery stores around at all. You know, I have to hop on the highway to go to Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, places like that. And it just sucks. But teaching kids, you know, there's a part of what I do. We just teach kids how to identify herbs, how to grow things, how to start hydroponics and things like that. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, William Padilla Brown, I don't know if you know him, yes. That's my guy. He was just at my house a couple of days ago, <laughs> and um, I always admired him because he teaches the youth. I remember watching him make spirulina and teaching kids and teaching like people on on just with his son. He was with his son, and he's like, "You could do this at home." I think that's really smart for all of us who are in spaces where we're either in mycology, we're in culinary or cannabis, whatever, we all have a knack to grow things. We all are here for, because we believe in what the earth gives us. And we're really passionate about that. So I think we would be doing all the youth. It's just really retooling and retraining kids these days. I have two kids, two teenagers, and my daughters, every time I leave out of town, all my plants die. I'm like, gosh, you guys would be terrible parents. <laughs> like, you, know I mean? you guys would be terrible parents. But we start off slow. You know, like um, my daughter was getting a message that she needed to be connected to the earth a little bit more. And I was like, great, let's start by planting things and, you know, figuring that out. But it's important. Word. Well, let's talk about mushrooms for a second now, because 
there's so many different directions we can go with this thing. And I'd love to dip into both the topics of psychedelic mushrooms and also, of course, culinary mushrooms. Because at the end of the day, for my money, Nikki, all mushrooms are magic, okay? And we've barely scratched the surface for what we can do as a species and as a planet when we collaborate with the fungi. And I'm an unabashed believer in that. So I'm curious, when did you first tap into psilocybin mushrooms and how did that experience or experiences impact you? Man, the first time I tapped into psilocybin mushrooms, I was in high school. I mean, I don't know if this is going to show my age, but we went to go see Austin Powers, the first one. <laughs> um, and I remember just having that moment where like, this is really different. But I didn't know how to accept it. You know what I mean? I didn't know how to like, I had a lot of friends that were into other things that I just wouldn't touch. You know, at first I used to think that acid was just like the craziest thing ever. And then, and then I tried mushrooms and I was just like, is it similar or like visually like slightly different? But anyway, so fast forward to my experience as a 17 year old doing mushrooms to now, there was a point in my life where I stopped using mushrooms recreationally. And it was a very weird switch out. I mean, I still use them as, you know, psilocybin mushrooms maybe to like hike and like do adventurous things but you won't catch me at the club all right and you you won't catch me where there's a lot of people just because I'm feeling so many energies now I I'm sit with a lot of like mushrooms on a very high dose probably regularly like a 10 plus gram journey 10 to like 12 to 15 at times depending on the strain but as a family, as a family unit, we go pretty deep into that medicine space. And so um, I'm probably one of the very few people that have gotten their grandmother on mushrooms, have aunts and uncles. And after my grandmother had a stroke, we immediately started her on mushrooms, on psilocybin. Um, And clearly micro amounts, um, but then it kind of transitioned into an ease of death transition which was actually a kind of a very like soft moment you know when you're giving someone mushrooms as they get ready to pass the other you know i give my mother mushrooms she suffers from a couple um neurological autoimmune things and so like i'm literally the mushroom fairy in my family yeah i mean my teenager she's in college for sure she gets our microdoses for sure like, you know what I mean? Like, it's most necessary. So I, 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 I push it from a different perspective of healing clearly, but that's my relationship with the medicine. I respect it at a, at a whole nother space because I have been drugged. And I'm glad to say that I have learned my lessons from those times. You know, that multi-generational healing is so important. And I think it's this huge area that people are starting to invest attention in, that it can potentially work and can address and in some cases resolve traumas that are multi-generational in nature. So you're a pioneer once again. That's something that has not happened in my family. And I'd love to be the mushroom fairy in my family, but there has to be a certain degree of willingness, right, of people to embrace this. Trust me, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, like, black folks are not an easy sell because I'm just being honest with you. They'll give you the side and I'd be like, yeah, no, it sounds like some white boy shit. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 it's not. It's not. <laughs> you know, like, 
let's redefine what white boy shit is. Like, you know, ask Darren LeBaron and Baba Kalindi Ee about that. You know, well, listen, those are my those are my guys. Like, um, Baba attended the Hind Affair, and in Detroit, and that was the honor I had of him coming to like just grace us with his presence at my event. I mean, it was it was the, one of the most like humbling, like serene nods. Like, and he said that we had something really cool here, and I was like, "Thank you." And so um, I am forever indebted to him, his family. Um, I'm pretty close with his family, um, and so I talk to them a lot. We're in the high dose group. <laughs> Yeah, I well, I'm in that group too. I uh, had an out of body experience when I was 18 with about a, a half ounce of mushrooms, so around 14 grams, and I had pushed it a little incrementally more and more because the first high dose experience I had on seven grams because I would buy them in eighths. I read Food of the Gods. I started reading and researching. I was going off to University of San Francisco, and I had already been fortunate to see quite a bit of the world and just felt this sense of like, I want to know what to do with the next chapter of my life, you know, and it, it all kind of lined up for me. So that seven gram experience was really impactful for me. And of course, a number of months later, I thought, well, let me try this high dose experience again. And just like you mentioned earlier, I've always felt very grounded and comfortable in those experiences. And so I took a 14 gram dose and had an out of body experience. And that's something I'm still trying to integrate into my life because it just showed me the immense power of these of these teachers and the, the respect that needs to be accorded to them. So, well, I wanted to tap into, you know, I, I have the ongoing relationship with them still, too. And an interesting thing, going back to the multi-generational family use. I was recently in Oaxaca, Mexico, in the Sierra Mazateca Mountains, and visiting an archivist who lives up there, who goes by, who is Inti Garcia Flores, and he was telling me about how they use mushrooms and the Mazateca culture, and they often take them for the first time under the tutelage and direction of their elders when they're eight years old. So he, he had his first experience when he was 12, and I talked to several other people who had their first mushroom experience at eight years old. And their thinking that he explained is because children aren't corrupted by the world yet. You don't have the same kind of problems that you might have as an adult. You don't have the same kind of responsibilities. So there's a very, a very clear channel for messages and information to be passed along to you. And I find that super interesting. And I know there's a lot of ancestral cultures that have rites of passage at young ages. Of course, now in the highly politicized U- U.S. And, and these cultures, that's something that's almost like, you know, a, a red tape around that you can't touch that but there's this ancestral lineage and you know many different cultures who have been using vision quests as a rite of passage for many years so i hope that that gets the respect and the attention that it deserves from our society eventually same i really hope the same too because i think it's important i um meet and have conversations with a lot of mothers who start their children on psilocybin mushrooms very young some toddlers some smaller in utero um also through breast milk and you know it's gonna be a minute before they actually study this you know because they don't want to they don't even want to study pregnancy and cannabis so who knows when the mushroom and pregnancy and um and you know using microdosing and toddlers and when their de- the brains are developing and things like that 
who knows when they'll study that. But I know some mushroom babies. Also, um, like Kalindi's grandkids. Those kids are different. <laughs> Those kids are different. I mean, you just have a lot of like, like I just have a lot of examples of even my own personal examples of my own children, of of the development and how they see the world once they come in contact with like being on a journey in the medicine. It's very profound. And I would say that as a mom or as a parent, that relationship that I have with my kids is very, it's like interdimensional training with your children. I have no other way to explain it, but it's a very close thing that I hold dear to my heart because I mean, I never realized I could, you know, like as a younger parent, when I first had them, that I could meet them in other spaces, you know, and, and, and be able to train them in new ways of the world and how to navigate the world. So ancestrally, them being mindful um, of why they're here, but them also being mindful of, you know, like I said, how to navigate the world because it's fucked up out here. <laughs> so. It's fucked up, man. And from where I'm standing, there's a great community that we have here and that we're building. But, you know, I thought by this time, by 2022, with the Internet and all these peer economies, we're going to be living in utopia. And we're not quite there yet. But, you know, there's some great folks out there doing the work to help advance that cause and to help us claim our spiritual heritage that we have. So I'd love to talk about cooking with mushrooms because I love to cook with mushrooms and I'm a, a spoiled man, Nikki. My wife is an extraordinary cook. So we eat like, ro oh, we eat like royalty day in and out. And I'm talking handmade pastas, multi-course meals cooked over a six hour period. It's a sight for sore eyes and it's just the greatest part of my life, arguably. Well, it sounds like your wife might need to come hang out with me sometime in the kitchen if she... <laughs> She kicks ass, dude. She is such a quiet boss. She just holds it down. We were living in LA for a while, and certainly at the start of the pandemic, we started to go to the Calabasas Farmer's Market and buy wild forage fungi from a tent there. And that was really the first time I had regular access to like morels and chanterelles and lion's mane and all these other great culinary and exotic fungi. So what, some of the things that we like to make were crab cakes with the lion's mane. That's kind of easy one and delicious. Ceviche with the lion's mane. Uh, cooking a lot with lion's mane here. Um, and I'm just curious, what are some of the mushrooms that you like to cook with and what are some of your favorite dishes that you like? You might like to make with culinary mushrooms? I have a pretty, pretty solid Asian aesthetic of foods that I like to make. I did um, some of my culinary studies in Thailand. And so like, I typically really enjoy like taking mushrooms and moving them to those flavors because there are already umami flavors that exist in a lot of Asian dishes and courses and um, even like sauces, uh, things like that. And so Typically, I lean towards that aesthetic of food in preparation. Mushrooms. I'm a, I'm, I'm a broth bitch. I love broths. I love broths. I love soups. I love to create. Um, oh my god, let me tell you what we made last time with mushrooms. We used. Um, have you uh, heard of like Tibetan momos? Okay. So we um, we made a lobster. Um, 
uh, with with lobster, and I believe that we used um, Hen of the Woods. Yes, we did use Hen of the Woods for that because I was trying to remember like how those flavors came together, but it was a lobster and a mushroom momo dumpling and like a Szechuan pepper tomato sauce. Um, and like, I, I just kind of like to like bring the mushrooms in as a softness because it, for me, it offers like, it adds a, like a little balance to flavor profiles regardless. And when you're infusing them with like terpenes and cannabis, it creates this other type of like, I don't know. It's just kind of like a soft bitterness. <laughs> I can't explain it, but it's really tasty. It's really tasty. Um, so, I mean, I, we use mushrooms a lot in everything. Like, I can't even, it's not that I, if I have someone that's foraging, I, of course, I can get all the exotic things. Um, I'm in Ohio, so we do have seasonal, like, you know, we have a morel season and we have, there's a lot of hen of the woods, a lot around here. Um, there is, you know, like, of quite a few options. We have maybe about four guys in the city that forage. And so we get some cool stuff, but mainly because I do volume, a lot of times some, the forage items are very hard for me to get in volume. Meaning like times 300, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just because every time I cook, I'm cooking in that. I don't know how to cook for two people. I don't, it's weird. I can't, I can't cook for myself unless it's just a can of soup. Like it feels like I'm always making very large portions. Well, I love community eating, you know, just being together in community and chatting. I grew up in a church environment and that's a big part of church, right? It's like Sunday afternoons having potlucks and all that stuff. And like, yeah, I grew up in a church too. And it was definitely after church, we had punch and food and we'd run around and do you know that kind of fellowship but um yeah i could i would love to bring some infused items to a church potluck right now yes it's so necessary so i'd love to tap into some of the the work that you've done with dave chappelle because you've done a lot of you know amazing events as discussed with all these notable pop culture figures, but Dave Chappelle's kind of in his own bracket in a lot of ways. And I've actually low key got a Dave Chappelle story. He was neighbors with one of my friends at the Four, Four Seasons private residences in San Francisco back in 2012. And we used to go over there when I was in college with like 12 students at a time and mob on these private residences to our friend's suite. And the Four Seasons security explicitly warned us not to talk to Dave or to bother Dave if we saw him, which is funny because Gavin Newsom lived on the same floor and they didn't say shit about us bothering Gavin Newsom. So that's the end of the story. I wish there was more to it, but we used to party with Dave's neighbor. We used to party with Dave Chappelle's neighbor. So I'd be curious about hearing a little bit about what it's like working with him and what he's like off camera, because the press has been all over him for a minute and it's impossible what to know to believe about anyone. So not many people get to connect with a historical figure the way that you have. So if you'd indulge us, I'd just love to hear a little bit. What's it like working with Dave? <laughs> it's what's it like working with Dave? I mean, it would be like a shock to you if I told you it was like working with anybody else. <laughs> it's just, it's my job. 
Number one. But okay, so real shit. Dave's probably the chillest person I've ever worked with. He doesn't, he's the only person that really does not request very specific things to eat. He is like, whatever's there, I'm eating it. Um, I just know what he likes, so I don't really have those problems. Um, and, you know, like, I work for his family, too. So it's, you know, like, I'm pretty much the person that handles, you know, birthdays and events and things like that. So I have a really good, like, relationship with them as, like, friends, family, and associates. But, and Dave is pretty introverted most of the time. So he's pretty quiet, but we do have a lot of people that come, but he's just very thoughtful. He's very mindful. Um, I would say like anytime I see him quiet, he's usually like, it's a glare into the distance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a very intentional thought process, but, um, a lot of times, you know, like in the summer times and when we do events, we have a lot of people that come in and out of the house. They're in and out of not even the house, but the town. Um, you know, it's a very small town in the middle of Ohio called Yellow Springs. And there's, you know, you could just be in the town, sitting there getting a coffee or, you know, maybe at one of the other little stores. And, you know, you'll just see John Stewart walking up the street or you'll see Quest Love on a canoe when we all go, um, on, you know, on boats or you'll see David Letterman walking through the town and it's kind of that energy. So because it is part of the work that I do, I think that my wow factor is very like, because I still have to execute at a high level. So it's very, I don't often let anybody who comes to dinner sit at the table, their status of celebrity does not jar me from my job. Because <laughs> I would not have my job if I did that. You understand? <laughs> so, it, they, but there are definitely moments where I'm like, shit, it's Naomi Campbell. Okay, what's up, girl? Like, let's get you fed. You know what I mean? I do have moments where afterwards... I'm like high-fiving myself like I did that. I mean, and I have a great team of all women. I have a team of just badass women. Like, and we knock shit out the park. And no one ever asks, I mean, no shit against guys, but typically the guys that have worked for me always have a moment <laughs> where they're like, I really want to talk to Dave. I'm like, no, you can't. We're working. We can't do that. You can't tell him you know, how he impacted your life when you were 15. Not right now. Well, he has to eat. <laughs> and so, but typically women, and they, the women in my kitchen, they're usually like, oh, hmm, they're cute. And they'll start back and just go back to work. But one time we had Bill Murray come. And um, one of my chefs, Katie, Katie is like my ace. Like, that's my girl. She was like, chef, I never asked you for anything. She's like, but you know how much of a Bill Murray fan I am. I'm like, I understand that, Katie. So I've already arranged for you. I didn't even tell Katie he was going to be there. I knew he was going to be there. I just needed Katie to get to work. <laughs> and by happenstance, that day, underneath her chef's coat, she wore a Bill Murray t-shirt. Just out, like out of the blue. And I said, Katie, I just want to let you know um, that Bill Murray is coming for brunch. 
And she's like, are you fucking shitting me? And I was like, no, I'm serious. And she was like, oh my God. And that was, the, that was it. I mean, that's the extent. Like, we get excited over Bill Murray. You feel me? Like, that's, like, uh, you know, because, like, I don't, there's not a lot of, like, young um, artists around me. Like, you know, there's not a lot of, like, I don't want to call young artists silly, but, I mean, there's a lot more established, like, mature talent, iconic talent. Okay. And so we end up, you know, like having very great conversations with some of these folks because we're in just close quarters. So like I said, it's cool. Like my team, we do a great job every time and we kick ass and, you know, like Dave always gives me a high five. Always. Like he, he never, every single time I execute dinner He's like, man, that was fantastic every time. One time he FaceTimed me because he, he was like, where are you? I was like, hmm, I'm not there. He didn't realize that when they asked me last minute to do a dinner for an album release, I was in Joshua Tree doing another dinner for another a cannabis company and I could not fly to Ohio that quick. It was the same day. And sometimes I only get, you know, less than a 24 hour notice. And so I flew my sous chef in and um, a couple other chefs to handle the dinner. And I was on FaceTime with them at, while I was doing one dinner and they were doing the other dinner. And I get a call from the road manager. He's like, where are you? Dave's trying to talk to you. He's trying to do a champagne toast. Get out of here. That food was bomb. And I was like, yeah, so I'm in Cali. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I'm in Joshua Tree. But I've been on FaceTime with my team the entire time. And I am glad that y'all thought I was there. That means they did a fucking amazing job. Knocked it out the fucking park. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Play it cool around celebrities. I lived in Malibu for a minute. And you learn real quick when you get invited to certain parties or the Soho house and this and that. Like, you know don't be asking people for photos and this and that and the other. And people really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, sometimes like I have to remind myself, not remind myself, but remind my staff mainly like they're regular people just like us for real. They just have a job that is a little bit more visible, you know, or whatever. And, and because I often see very real human moments, you know what I mean? And so I'm like, Give them space just like I would want space for myself. And it's very interesting to me because now as a lot of people I know, a lot of people know I work for Dave and do other things. So I have people that immediately come up to me now and go like, don't even ask. Oh, can I get a picture? I'm like, hold on. <laughs> Give me a second. I'm just now getting to understanding that. So I be So there are times where I look at like, a lot of people's reactions, like Dave's reactions when fans come up to him, and he's very respectful always. You know, he's never going to be like, get out of here. Um, but it's very like, wonderful to meet you. <laughs> Let me move on here. Um, so that is all. I just, you know, try to always tell people they're just humanize them. They're not above us that way. You know what I mean? Beyonce, too. I don't know about Beyonce. That's different. That's a whole different thing. 
Oh, yeah, it's different. Well, thanks for indulging me in that. I just thought that'd be fun for the audience, you know, to get a little window into Dave's world. But before we let you go today, Nikki, we got to talk music because that's such a huge part of my life. It's such a huge part of psychedelic culture and cannabis culture. And I'm always curious to ask our guests on the podcast about the musical artists that helped shape your your worldview and some of the artists that you're listening to right now. So, you know, I've got a vinyl collection and my vinyl collection is probably worth more than any of the rest of my assets combined because it's so important to me. You know, I'm that type who's like, I'll skip meals so I can get the vinyl that I need that I saw in the store or whatnot. So would love to hear from you. Like, who are some of the artists that helped define your worldview? Well, I'm a very tapped in person in the music space. Um, like I can't make moves without music around me. Like it's always like I'm always connected to it. And I say now the artist that I'm going to actually tell you that shaped my, you know, kind of life and upbringing are very interestingly my friends now. <laughs> I used to like, you know, do things and be like, Wow, like I'm really cool with Tribe Called Quest. Like those are my homies. Jerobi, he DJs. You want to talk about a DJ's DJ? He's a founding member of Tribe Called Quest. Um, Q-Tip, like all those people, they they shaped. You know, like hip hop music was very integral in my life as um, being in the, in high school in the late '90s and going to college in the two, early 2000s, right? <clears throat> That was like a, a moment in hip hop that was like a very interesting change in the sound. And so I was more of an East Coast hip hop head, like De La Soul. Those guys are my homies now. Because um, I just did one of a Tribe Called Quest, one of the Jerobis, I did his wedding. <laughs> like, and then the guys from D- Maceo from De La DJ, you know, so that was a really moment for me. And I'm like, this is cool. And so those those folks really kind of molded and shaped me on the hip hop side, like Wu Tang. Um, I was like a super fan of like Common, um, who I've worked for, uh, and then so that on the hip hop side. But I'm also very connected to like jazz music and like trip hop, acid jazz. Um, I do listen to a lot of like house lounge, Ibiza, chill vibes. <laughs> I can, it's kind of all over the place. I pretty much listen to everything except for like country, I guess. And, you know, maybe like certain types of like hard rock, like harder rock, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But um, but these days I have, a, I have a playlist that a lot of restaurants use called Vibes Curated by Chef Nikki. It's on Spotify, but if anyone ever wanted to know. But it's it's a collection of, you know, newer music. Um, I like Robert Glasper a lot. And he, yeah, that is just one of my favorite people. I have this video of Robert Glasper telling me I make the best fucking yams he's ever had in his life. Um, that was a great compliment. <laughs> um Robert also told me he liked my music taste because he was listening. He was like, who chooses the music for your videos? And I was like, I do. He was like, wow, you have a really good ear. And I was like, thanks. Uh, and yeah, I got a chance to be in the studio with him in Common, just catering stuff for Common in the studio. So that is like, I live in that little space now. So I look at 
you know, I listen to the music of my peers, my actual peers. That's an awesome place to be. You know, mentioning Common, someone who I actually grew up with who randomly, not randomly, she put a lot of work into it. Someone I grew up with who blew up, who works with him is Andra Day. I don't know if you've ever met her, but. Andra Day, she has an amazing voice. She is. Yeah, she's from San Diego and like her family went to my church and I know the whole family. And, you know, she was one of those people working for years. And then all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, she's recording with Stevie Wonder and now she's at the White House. So shout out Andra Day. And I know she just did an album with Common too. Yeah, shout, shout her out for sure. For sure. But like some of these DJs and some of this sound, this is what this is what the high end affair sounds like. The high end affair will sound like you come into it and it's like K Trinata mixed with, you know, like a little bit of Robert Glasper and and mixed with some hip hop, mixed with, you know, some I mean shit. We'll throw some nineties rock in there. I mean it's a nice little mix, you know what I mean, of of music. And these are the type of people that like are on my list of people to DJ, like K Trinata. Um, he's on my bucket list for a party, and I cannot wait to put this party together um, with the budget, because <laughs> those are the those are the type of vibes that I like to keep very upbeat. When you're doing parties, when people are getting high, you can't have slow music. You can't have, you know, the symphony because they will slip into the oblivion and you won't be able to get them out. So I need a constant bop. I like house music and shit like that. So yeah. A lot of care and consideration that goes into curating these events, no doubt. So I know you've got a lot going on today and I want to tap in for one last question before we let you go today, Chef Nikki. And that's what are you working on right now that you can tell us about, you know, without violating an NDA or anything. We've got a lot of interesting people working on a lot of interesting projects that come through the show. You mentioned that you've got a book that you're working on. What are some other things that we can look forward to over the next six months to a year in the Chef Nikki universe? Man, and what a universe it's going to be. Um, I'm over here like with the Birdman hands. Just I'm excited for the world <laughs> to get Chef Nikki products. The products will be in dispensaries, um, hopefully by third, fourth quarter of this year. Um, and so those will be products that you would use to cook with. Um, and a few like healthy snack items, but majority of the products are going to encourage you to get in the kitchen and use these items to cook with. I'm trying to kind of like create what looks like a trade, a mini Trader Joe's in the dispensary. And so the products are, are definitely coming. Um, anytime if people, when people see me post that I'm having a baked sale, um, it's really the products that people buy are the ones that I'm doing sampling just to make sure that these work <laughs> and as a general like rollout. And so, and then we, of course we have the book, um, and that's going to, that's definitely a labor of love for me right now. Um, the high end affair is still going on tour. We're going to be doing our first international we're on tour now, um, but we are taking our first large international trip to South Africa. So we got asked to do the Hind Affair in South Africa. So we'll be doing that in Johannesburg at um, a festival called the Delicious Festival, which is a, um, a food and wine festival and jazz, which Robert Glasper will be there. <laughs> um, and Snoop. 
But so, yeah, so we'll be taking um, part in that. And then we'll also take it to Cape Town to do another high-end affair. So we'll be doing, you know, we're really kind of focusing on a few countries in Africa just because they have gone fully recreational. Um, and so because that's where a lot of your strains come from. So might as well go to the source. And so we're focusing a lot on international stuff. And we have a partnership with Weed Maps. So you'll see a lot coming from Chef Nikki Weed Maps. Yeah. Podcasts, shows, and all that shit. I'm here. I'm here for all the shits. We out here. Chef Nikki, thank you so much for joining us on the Michael Preneur Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I sure enjoyed the hell out of it. And I'm looking forward to following all of the, the great things that you're doing. Same, Dennis. And I think that you are necessary in this space. I just want to tell you that. You are very necessary because we can't laugh at ourselves enough. Okay, number one. And the things that we see in, you know, the psychedelic space and cannabis plant medicine space, they're quite funny. And a lot of us just sit there and just be like, hmm. But I applaud you for putting that shit out there. Psycho Naughty the other day kind of almost took me out. I thought that shit was hilarious, okay? But I don't know. I, like, your brain, I like, the way it's working, I'm fucking with it. So, like, I appreciate you. Just wanted to let you know. Que onda, my friends. Gotta refresh the outro, too. So what'd you think of this episode? Drop us a line. Hit the DMs on Instagram at Michaelpreneur Podcast, or dare I say, TikTok. Yes, we've been engaging in TikTokery as of late. And while I have your attention, Ego Death Magazine is actively soliciting content submissions and recurring contributor roles. Just take a look at the type of content exhibited thus far at www.egodeathmagazine.com to get an idea of what sort of materials we are looking to platform. So don't be a stranger. Bridges, not borders, baby. All right, you take care of yourself now. I'll be seeing you around. Ciao, au revoir, sayonara, and adios, motherfuckers. <laughs>